Hello, everyone, and welcome to the September 13th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A WCAB panel agreed that a worker's two-inch long leg shortening was an amputation which raised the temporary total disability cap from 104 weeks to 240 weeks. Samson Parker was the applicant in this case and he worked as a bus driver for AC Transit in December 2016 when he injured his left leg, left ankle, left foot, and right wrist. Following this injury, he underwent multiple surgeries. The last surgery occurred in October 2019 when he underwent his uh, surgery that caused a shortening of his left lower leg. His PTP described the last surgical procedure as a limb shortening surgery, and when he became MMI, his leg was about two inches shorter than the right. The matter proceeded to trial on the issue of whether he qualified for the amputation exception to the 104-week cap on temporary total disability indemnity. A findings and award issued concluding that the surgical removal of bone from Parker's left lower extremity combined with a shortening of the limb constituted an amputation, and he was therefore awarded TTD beyond the 104-week limit. Reconsideration of this finding was denied in the panel case of Parker v. AC Transit. The Labor Code provides that for an employee who suffers from, the, from certain injuries or conditions, and in this case an amputation, that aggregate disability payments for a single injury shall not extend for more than 240 compensable weeks within a period of five years from the date of injury. Otherwise, the limit is 104 weeks. In the 2007 Appeals Board en banc decision of Cruz versus Mercedes-Benz of San Francisco, the Appeals Board defined amputation as the severance or removal of a limb, part of a limb, or other body appendage. It is undisputed that in this case, as a result of a limb shortening surgery, Parker lost about two inches from his left lower extremity, a protruding external body part. The amputation exception does not require the severance of an entire body part. And now our crime report. A former California Employment Development Department employee has agreed to plead guilty to a criminal charge for causing nearly 200 fraudulent COVID-related unemployment relief claims to be filed in other people's names, resulting in more than $1.6 million in ill-gotten gains. The perpetrator in this case was 49-year-old Gabriela Larinas, also known as Maria G. Sandoval, and she lives in Paris, California. And worse yet, court records show that Lorenus previously worked as an, at EDD as a disability insurance program representative and resigned in 2002 after admitting to fraudulently authorizing and paying disability benefits administered by the EDD. She was then sentenced to 37 months in federal prison in connection with that 2002 scheme. So now this new scheme that she has admitted running 
took advantage of the expanded eligibility for unemployment insurance benefits made possible by the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security, known as the CARES Act, signed into law this March 2020. Starting about one month after this coronavirus benefit took effect, she filed EDD claims for this benefit that falsely asserted that claimants were self-employed, independent contractors, often identifying them as cake decorators or event attendants who were negatively affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. The Rannis obtained some of the names social security numbers, and other identifying information she used to submit the fraudulent claims through her prior work as a tax preparer. In her plea agreement, she also admitted to falsely stating on some of the applications that the claimants were residents of California, entitling them to unemployment insurance benefits administered by the EDD, when in fact they lived elsewhere. She also admitted that on some applications, she inflated the amounts of income she reported for the claimant to maximize the benefit amount. She also admitted to sometimes filing a dozen or more fraudulent EDD claims on a single day. In total, 197 debit cards were fraudulently issued because of this scheme, resulting in losses that were at least $1.6 million. Lorenis is scheduled to make her initial court appearance on September 22nd when she faces a statutory maximum sentence of 20 years in federal prison. Our news contributor, John Castro, has something to report this week. John, what do you have for us today? Thank you, Renee. Three former National Football League players have pled guilty for their roles in a nationwide scheme to defraud a health care benefit program for retired NFL players. A total of 15 defendants have pled guilty in connection with this scheme in related cases. The three new pleas were made by 40-year-old Clinton Portis of Fort Mill, South Carolina, 47-year-old Tameric Vanover of Tallahassee, Florida, and 40-year-old Robert McCune of Riverdale, Georgia. The former players admitted to participating in a scheme to defraud the Gene Upshaw NFL Player Health Reimbursement Account Plan. This plan was established pursuant to the NFL's 2006 Collective Bargaining Agreement and provided for tax-free reimbursement of -of out-of-pocket medical care expenses that were not covered by insurance and that were incurred by former players, their spouses, and their dependents. Clinton Portis submitted fraudulent claims to the plan over a two-month period obtaining nearly $100,000 in benefits for expensive medical equipment that was not actually provided. Tamarick Vanover recruited three other former NFL players into the fraudulent scheme and assisted them in causing fraudulent claims to be submitted to the plan, obtaining just under $160,000 for expensive medical equipment that, once again, were not actually provided and Robert McCune orchestrated the nationwide fraud, which resulted in approximately $2.9 million in fraudulent claims being submitted to the plan. Portis, Vanover, and McCune, and seven other defendants were indicted in December of 2019 for their roles in the fraud, and later five additional NFL players were charged in the scheme. 
of 12 of the other defendants charged, they have pled guilty to this conspiracy to commit health care fraud. Portis and Vanover pled guilty to conspiracy to commit health care fraud and agreed to pay full restitution to the plan. Portis is scheduled to be sentenced on January 6th and Vanover is scheduled to be sentenced on January 22nd, 2022. Each face a maximum penalty of 10 years in prison. McCune pled guilty to conspiracy to commit wire fraud and health care fraud, 13 counts of health care fraud, 11 counts of wire fraud, and 3 counts of aggravated identity theft. McCune is scheduled to be sentenced on November 19th. He faces a maximum penalty of 20 years in prison for conspiracy to commit wire fraud and health care fraud, 10 years for each count of health care fraud, 20 years for each count of wire fraud, and 2 years for each count of aggravated identity theft. The case was investigated by the FBI and included efforts by various FBI field offices and resident agencies, including Los Angeles, San Diego, Sacramento, and Newport Beach, California. Back to you, Renee. San Diego area pain clinic doctor Brenton Wynn, W-Y-N-N, M-D, has paid $200,000 to resolve allegations that he illegally prescribed opioids and other dangerous drugs to his patients. Wynn was a graduate of Howard University College of Medicine in 1998 and has an office on Euclid Avenue in National City, California. The Controlled Substances Act Controlled Substances Act provides that doctors may write prescriptions for opioids only for a legitimate medical purpose while acting in the usual course of their professional practice. United States attorneys allege that Dr. Wynn wrote opioid prescriptions to patients in violation of this act for more than five years. The prescriptions he wrote were for fentanyl, oxycodone, hydromorphone, methadone, and oxymorphone, and morphine. They also alleged that Dr. Wynn prescribed a dangerous combination of opioids and benzodiazepines, such as Xanax and Valium, at the same time. Of even more concern, Dr. Wynn allegedly prescribed to some patients a combination of at least one opioid, one benzodiazepine, and one muscle relaxant, such as Soma. Drug abusers colloquially refer to the opioid, benzodiazepine, and muscle relaxant combination as the Trinity or Holy Trinity because of its rapid euphoric effects. These drug combinations are known to significantly increase the risk of addiction, abuse, and overdose. Dr. Wynn sometimes allegedly continued to prescribe dangerous opioids even when his patient's urine drug test result showed that they were not taking the drugs he prescribed. The DEA has pending administrative action against Dr. Wynn to revoke his ability to prescribe opioids and other controlled substances. And in regulatory news, under the WCIRB regulations, most businesses in California are single enterprises, which means that all the normal and usual operations for the business are assigned to a single classification. However, some businesses have two or more operations that cannot be easily described by a single classification. 
For these employers, the multiple enterprises rule provides direction in determining whether one or more classifications can be assigned. This multiple enterprises rule was amended to clarify the rule that definitions and definitions applicable to operations that constitute multiple enterprises in order to promote consistent and accurate data reporting, as well as to make the rule simpler and easier to administration. These new amendments became effective on September 1. Under the revised multiple enterprises rule, the key to determining whether operations can be separately classified is physical separation of the operations. If the distinct operations of the businesses are physically separated, each operation can be separately classified. But if they are not physically separated, the operations must be assigned to the highest rated classification applicable to any of these operations conducted in a common workspace. The full text of the new amended rule is available on the Multiple Enterprises page on the WCIRB.com website. HHS announced a plan to directly negotiate drug prices. A new federal plan has been announced aimed at lowering prescription drug prices by giving the government sweeping power to directly negotiate the cost of medicines. The plan was developed by the Department of Health and Human Services and mirrors a range of legislative options that both House and Senate lawmakers have floated in recent years. Those include capping out-of-pocket costs in Medicare Part D, limiting how quickly pharmaceutical companies can hike prices on existing drugs, and banning so-called pay-for-delay agreements aimed at blocking generic competition to brand-name drugs. Under the HHS plan, the government would directly negotiate prices for drugs in Medicare Parts B and D, and more importantly for workers' compensation, with those prices also being available to private insurance plans and any employers who want to participate. House Democrats passed a similar provision as part of a major drug pricing bill in 2019. But it never made it into law, and some in the party's centrist wing have since vowed to oppose drug pricing negotiation. The HHS plan also lays out a series of administrative actions that the department could take to fulfill what identified as three guiding principles. Making drugs more affordable, improving competition within the industry, and encouraging innovation. Those options included testing value-based payment models and boosting cost-sharing support to certain low-income Medicare beneficiaries. It also suggests that improved data collection from insurers and pharmacy benefit managers could give the government better insight into drug pricing, as well as rebates and out-of-pocket spending on prescription medications. HHS developed the report in response to an executive order, which was titled, Promoting Competition in the American Economy, and identifies a lack of competition as a key driver for problems across economic sectors. 
The report states that Americans spend more than $1,500 per person on prescription drugs and pay prices that are far higher than any comparable nation, and that prices for brand-name drugs are rising faster than inflation. And in medical news, World Health Organization officials said that COVID-19 is likely here to stay with us as the virus continues to mutate in unvaccinated countries across the world. And previous hopes of eradicating it have now diminished. The executive director of the World Health Organization's Health Emergencies Program made this announcement at a press briefing in Geneva, Switzerland. He said he thinks this virus is here to stay with us and it will evolve into something like the influenza pandemic viruses and that it will evolve to become one of the other viruses that affect us. Officials at the Globe Health Agency have previously said vaccines do not guarantee the world would eradicate COVID-19 like it has other viruses. Several leading health experts, including White House Chief Medical Advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci and Stephanie Bancel, CEO of the COVID vaccine maker Moderna, have also warned that the world will have to live with COVID forever, much like it does with influenza. World Health Organization officials also said that if the world had to take an early steps to stop the spread of the virus, the situation today would have been much different. In January, the journal Nature asked more than 100 immunologists, infectious disease researchers, and virologists working on the coronavirus whether it could be eradicated. Almost 90% of the respondents think that the coronavirus will become endemic, meaning that it will continue to circulate in pockets of the global population for years to come. An epidemiologist at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis said that eradicating this virus right now from the world is unrealistic. But failure to eradicate the virus does not mean that death, illness, or social isolation will continue on the scales seen so far. The future will depend heavily on the type of immunity people acquire through infection or vaccination and how the virus evolves. Influenza and the four human coronaviruses that cause common colds are also endemic, but a combination of annual vaccines and acquired immunity means that societies tolerate the seasonal deaths and illnesses they bring without requiring lockdowns, masks, and social distancing. And in other coronavirus news, the Mu coronavirus variant has been recorded now in 49 U.S. states, with Florida and California reporting the highest number of Mu infections. California has recorded 384 Mu variant cases, with 167 cases contained in just the Los Angeles County area. Until recently, Alaska had the highest number of Mu cases, with 146 people testing positive for that variant. 
Nebraska is the only state in the country to have not detected a case of Mu variant of COVID-19. Since being first identified last January in Colombia, the Mu variant has spread to 41 countries, including the United States. But Dr. Anthony Fauci said in a news conference that Mu is not an immediate threat. But he said scientists will be keeping a very close eye on it. This variant, he said, has a constellation of mutations that suggests that it would evade certain antibodies, not only monoclonal antibodies, but vaccine and convalescent serum-induced antibodies. L.A. County Public Health issued a statement explaining more work is needed to tell what we are dealing with and that more studies are needed to determine whether Mu variant is more contagious, more deadly, or more resistant to vaccine and treatments than other COVID-19 strains. Maine, Connecticut, and Florida round out the list of states with the highest prevalence of Mu cases. The World Health Organization labeled Mu a variant of interest on August 30 because its characteristics could make it more transmissible or resistant to vaccines. However, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, has yet to make the same classification. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news podcast and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, Minukian, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.